ahead and stand up together. Welcome if you're joining us from home. It's a privilege that we get every week to join together and to sing praise to God, to remember His faithfulness to us, and to extol Him for His love. Let's sing together. Finally see your face 
Before the Savior's feet And sing as all the heavens resound For all eternity You are our song from age to age Our voices unite to recount your praise Again and again Listen to Psalm 98. Let's hear God call us to worship. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So what do we do in response? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So we get to do this morning and sing a joyful song to the Lord, remembering His love for us, remembering His worth, remembering that He's the God who saves. All over this room, there are people who profess that, that He's the God who saved them, saved you, saved me. Let's rejoice in that this morning together. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come, we're gathered together to lift up Your name. To call on our Savior, to fall on your grace. Yes, we are. In the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come. We're gathered together to lift up your name, to fall on our Savior, to fall on your grace. 
hear the joyful sound of our offering as your saints bow down as your people sing we will rise with you lifted on your wings and the world will see sound of our offering as your saints bow down as your people sing we will rise with you lifted on your wings and the world will see hear the joyful sound hear the joyful sound of our offering as your saints bow down as your people sing we will rise with you lifted on your you save. There's hope in your name. There's some maybe gathered here this morning that need to be reminded that you have hope. You offer hope to us in times of trouble, in times of waiting, in times of need. When we need your rescue, Lord, we have hope. So communicate to us, Lord, as we continue to sing. Lord, just communicate to us afresh of the trustworthiness that we can hope in, Lord, in you. Lord, you will not fail us. Lord, you have been steadfast from the beginning. You have been faithful, and we can continue to trust you. Receive our praise. Walking around these walls I thought by now they'd fall 
But you have never failed me yet Waiting for change to come For you have never failed me yet Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness, faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never fail me yet. Never will fail me, Lord. Always faithful. I know the night won't last Your word will come to pass My heart will sing your praise again Song in her mouth Jesus, you're still enough Keep me within your love My heart will sing your praise again Yes it will Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Faithfulness I'm still in your This is my confidence, you never fail, your promise, your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness, faithfulness, still in your hands, this is my still stands great is your faithfulness
my confidence. You've never failed me yet. Believe you never will fail us, Lord. fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast when the tempter would prevail he will hold me fast I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. the Lord wants me to share a truth that may apply to some here. God is calling us to embrace this season. And I think some of us have thought this must be an aberration. This must be something out of the ordinary. God really doesn't have this under his control, surely. Let me assure you from God's word, God is in control even of this day and time. And he is calling all of us, calling you, if you have failed to do so, to embrace what he is doing. And look in these circumstances for what God is wanting to communicate to you personally about how you are called to be changed, to be more like his dear son. This is an opportunity God has called you to, to mature in him. And through it all, he will hold you fast. It's in the second verse. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. 
Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to end this life. He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight. When he comes at safe in your arms. Lord, this season is not something that's caught you by surprise. Lord, in whatever difficulties we're experiencing in life, Lord, you, you are aware. Lord, you know them. You know the challenges. You know the pain. You know the hurt. You know the temptation. Lord, and you hold us still because you're faithful. You're steadfast. You don't give up. Lord, you're patient with us, as we heard last week. Your love is patient, it's kind. Lord, thank you for this kind of love, and thank you that this is the love that you modeled for us, and that we now get to model with one another. Lord, thank you for holding us. Thank you for not letting us go. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. morning to all of you gathered with us here, uh, to those of you watching from at home, and to any families joining us with the, the family room upstairs. So grateful to be together in heart and together in this place. Uh, my name is Evan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you've been visiting here and, and we haven't had a chance to connect with you, we just would love the opportunity to meet you. So uh, come up and, and introduce yourself after the service, and we'll catch up uh, from behind a mask and, uh, and get to know you as well. We'd love to take a moment um, to connect. We've been in this, this study of love uh, this summer, uh, 
And Jesus summarizes the, the priorities for, for our lives uh, before God, to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And last week, uh, Pastor Ronald took us into how our, our giving Sunday after Sunday is an expression of love toward God. It, it's, it's an entrusting to him our hope. It's bringing to him our affections. It's, it's taking the, the resources that we have, that we have, we have spent our strength, our time, our energy in order to receive and, and giving them back to him. And our giving is also a way that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we, we love them through extending the ministry and, and the mission of the gospel as we give to the church We're giving to an environment, this alternative community where people can experience fellowship and care. Uh, We're giving toward resources that are going to support the poor and and help those who are suffering. And and that's continued, by the way, in in our church throughout this season as we've interacted with needs and opportunities we've had to extend God's love and care. So thank you for your giving. Thank you for your your continued faithfulness and your heart expressed to God in the ways that uh, our community and our neighbors are being served as well as you give. Uh, several ways that you can give uh, today that we've got the offering boxes uh, at the back of the room, which you can use, uh, or you can use the website or app or, or bill pay if you'd like to do that. Uh, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, thank you for a love that will not let us go, that will hold us fast. Lord, I I pray that throughout this morning, as we've worshiped, as we hear your word, Lord, we would be experiencing your love and it would overflow from us with a heart of affection toward you and a burden to extend it to others as well. And Lord, we do that now just in our practice of giving. We show forth your love in Jesus' name. We have a couple of things to highlight. Our first ever online VBS is kicking off tomorrow. And so we're diving under the sea. It's, it's, it's going to be really exciting. I just love what the VBS team has put together. A uh, time of fun, uh, really, really interactive videos, uh, opportunities for families to do things on their own, to do crafts and snacks, as well as to connect with other families. Um, and so in order to be on the receiving end of all that, if you wouldn't mind signing up, you can do that on the website or app under the Sunday morning uh, tab there, and you'll get every day all the content that you need uh, sent to you each day to have a, a, a great VBS um, together. Other thing we want to draw attention to is our youth camp. Uh, we're grateful to be able to Go away with some teenagers uh, this summer. It's going to be July 22nd through 25th. And just in all the things happening in life right now and in the world, uh, glad to have opportunity to to focus on God, uh, to experience fellowship, uh, and to be able to do that uh, this summer at camp. And we know we've already had uh, many students registering, and you can do that online as well on our website or app. All right, Pastor Keith's going to bring us the word. Here we go. Am I on now? Sorry about that, guys. I had the wrong button on. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Good to, to well, I was going to say it's good to see you guys at home. It's good for you to see us, at least. Uh, we can't see you, but we hope soon to be able to do that. We miss you very much. 
Uh, each week we get a chance to, to welcome a few folks who are with us for the first time in a long time and some folks who have lost their way and ventured into the land of the Kansas City Chiefs are here with us. Uh, still Saints fans, I trust. Yeah, that would be the Douglases, Billy and Kelly and their kids are here and so glad for you guys to be back among us. Yes, indeed. So please, uh, social distancing wise, grant them a hello before they scoot out of here today. Uh, listen, as long, as far back as I can remember being in this church since the early 80s, we have never not had a VBS production here. And so every summer, uh, all staff members, pastors would have to <clears throat> take on characters. I've played all kinds of Bible characters through the years. Um, unfortunately, having to star next to Peter Davidson was some of the most scary experiences in life because he could never remember his lines, and he actually threw a spear at me in one of those dramas. But uh, this is the first year we're not going to gather hundreds of kids into this room and in the building <clears throat> during the, the VBS week, which means a lot of work has been done by a, a handful of folks in our church <clears throat> to export this thing and send it virtual, and it just looks a lot of fun, really outstanding work. But I, I just want you to be aware of these folks as you're receiving some really quality stuff for your kids this week that they have put in an amazing amount of work and excellence. All right, so let me just mention a few of these guys. You can be praying and thanking God for them this week. Uh, Eric and, and Hope and uh, Ellen Pell have, have teamed up and done some amazing creativity and amazing coordinating of some things uh, over really for months now leading up to the last few weeks. Uh, Jordan and Stephen and Seth and Abby have, have been really at work, I think, night and day. I know my son comes home with stuff that he's editing because a lot of editing is taking place, right? Instead of just doing stuff up here, these guys are filming stuff, producing it, and then editing it, and, and, and you're going to see it next week, and it's a lot of fun stuff. Uh, Terry Roboski, Kurt Roberts, who was playing drums a little while ago, has done an incredible job with music. Ronald has been working with the guys this week, so... I know there's some more involved, but those guys have been putting in a lot of time for our VBS production this week. So I just want to say thank you to them and uh, how grateful we are that, that you love our kids and want to pour into their lives this week. So if you haven't signed up for VBS, please do that. It's really simple this year. You just stay at home and it comes to you, right? So that's about as simple as it's going to get. All right, can we pray together before I get into this message? I have a particular burden for us today in this category of the love story from 1 Corinthians 13. Let's just open in prayer before we turn to that passage. Lord, this thing called love, it's big. Lord, we notice it when it is near to us. We are affected when it is absent. Lord, in this room, we would all have stories of the difference that giving and receiving love has made in our lives. Unfortunately, we would have stories when love was not done well. Perhaps we were the guilty party in that exchange, or we were on the receiving end. Lord, we are, we are here probably celebrating love or 
regretting past experiences, and our lives have been extremely shaped by this love story, how it has come to our lives or how it has seemingly not come to our lives. So Lord, this is not a small item for any of us. God, would you help us? But I, I trust that what you have put in your word that we will observe today could find its way into the recesses of our lives in ways that are are deeply impacting. So give us an incredible upgrade of our understanding and our experiencing of love as you have created that thing called love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you want to turn there. Um, Pretty sure in this category it's it's a... can't miss category, that we want love to come on the scene of our lives in in all the spaces that we have relationships that matter to us, right? So we want love to characterize our families, right? If you guys are parents or if you're kids and you're in a family, you want that setting to have love in it be experienced in exchange between each person that's there. If you're married or you one day hope to be married, you want that relationship to feature love. You want love to be a massively important, big deal aspect to that relationship. If you are in the body of Christ and you're a part of a church, you want that setting to be unusually characterized by love. So this is, this is not a small thing. It was not a small thing for the Apostle Paul who interacts with a, a local church in the town of Corinth. He wants them to have an experience that, char- that is characterized by love. But that wasn't what they were experiencing. Right? Remember, this is a church that Paul opens up chapter 1 by highlighting that there's divisions among you. There's quarreling. There is people who are taking sides with one leader versus another leader. So these disputes break out among you. You are suing each other, taking each other to court. You can't work things out. This shows up when you just go to do communion. You guys gather for communion and the rich people arrive early, bring all the good food, eat it all, and then the poor people come later and they got nothing. Where's the love in that? You guys are the most spiritually gifted church in the whole New Testament. But, but you even use your spiritual gifts in a way that lacks love. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he tells the church, and I guess this would be true in our marriages, it would be true in our families, that you can have lots of stuff going for you. Lots of good things, decent things. But if you subtract love from that set of relationships, Paul's going to say you got nothing. So love is that big of a deal. But this morning, I want to highlight some things about love. I want to highlight that, that love's not an accident. Love doesn't just, quote, happen. And I'm going to highlight something in the title there that gives away my thought. This love that's in the scriptures doesn't travel alone. So there's some other things that are needed for us to understand, experience, appreciate, walk in, taste the goodness of this love. You just can't go straight to the word love and think you've arrived because this love doesn't travel alone. 
Right, so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 again at Paul's descriptives, his list of descriptives about love, beginning in verse 4. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures Love never fails. This love story that we're talking about, let me pull it out of two very common concepts that we tend to associate with love. And, and I get why they are, but, but there's just more to it. There's something about love that we long to experience that is like chemistry. It's, it's an experience. It's euphoric. It's captivating. It's alluring. It's got this quality to it that just sets off this experience in us. And so we're, we're kind of drawn to that. This is the aspect of love that we use the term we fell in love. It just sounds like an accident. It sounds like something you didn't have any control over. You just kind of, you just were walking along, minding your own business, doing life, and all of a sudden like a magnet, you get sucked into this thing called love and just you were head over heels and who can explain all this stuff? But it is a euphoric, amazing experience. And there is a dimension to love that feels that way. But there's more to love than that. And even for those of us who recognize that, you know, there, there's more to love in the sense that sometimes love isn't easy. Sometimes love is hard. Sometimes love is making choices that you don't feel like making, you don't necessarily want to make, but you do it anyway. Maybe that, that bootstrap kind of love that you just, you just got to come up with reasons to do it because you, quote, fell out of love. Though, what, do we, what do we even mean by that, right? You can't fall out of the intentionality of love because I can always intentionally direct my love towards somebody who's not really attracting me to do it. So what we mean is you've stopped attracting that love from me. You've shut your magnetic power off, right? You get married long enough. You go through some problems. You've been in a relationship. You've been in a church for a while. At some point, the magnet goes out, and you don't feel this kind of sense of, oh, I'm just enamored. I'm just going to love it. Love is so easy, right? Those of you guys married for a while, at some point, you recognize, right? There's aspects of love that ain't easy. It's hard. And at those moments, you pick up your vows that you made at an altar, and you remember you said for better or for worse, in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. And so there's a dimension to love that doesn't feel like it's this ooey-gooey, captivating, euphoric experience. But let me just say this. The love that's being described in this chapter is more than both of those dimensions. It's more than bootstrap determination. And it's more than just this euphoric set of feelings that magnetically draw us to it. I think I wrote this in your notes or your outline. The love in 1 Corinthians 13's love story is unique and different than both of these. It is a supernatural love that gets imparted to us from God and begins to operate in us by the Holy Spirit. So be careful where we get our concepts of love. Now, I want to draw this out 
just by, by looking at something that Jesus said one day about love and about our loving one another, right? He says it in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, I had to use my... uh, engineering background here to create a schematic, right? You guys know what a schematic is. If, you're, if you've seen one, you just know it was called a schematic. This is a schematic of John chapter 14, verse 15. You have Jesus laying a few pieces on the table here, and he's going to explain three basic things that you don't want to overlook. This relationship between love and commands. He says, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So there's a relationship between the commandments of God and this love of God, which we end up loving God with his love. So there's a relationship there, right? The law is summed up in this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the commands. So love is related to the commands, right? So so don't... Don't go weird on this. Don't go, well, you know, those Old Testament commands. That's the Old Covenant. There's New Covenant. The the commands are related to love. Right? When we don't put any other gods before God, we are loving God. When we don't commit murder or steal or commit adultery, we are loving one another. Right? So there's expressions of love that get themselves revealed through these commands. So Jesus connected these things, but he added one more thing to this. Immediately, doesn't waste a moment. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you some help. He will give you the Holy Spirit. In other words, for you to love like this, you're going to need something supernatural. See, this love doesn't travel alone. It's not just a concept that we fall into. It's not just something that we mature into and we turn 13 or 14 and all of a sudden a dimension of it comes to life or we have children and all of a sudden parental love shows up and it's got its own little personality. This love has a story. It comes from somewhere. It's got qualities to it that need to be understood. And Jesus, the schematic, right, what we do out here is this love for one another. We keep the commands. We love each other. That's what you see out here. But underneath that love is the love of Jesus, both our love for him and our being loved by him. And what's beneath that is the work of the Holy Spirit to make that real to us, to give us a love for Jesus that comes from him. So so let's get real here. Because, you know, there's so much going on in our world today. There's so much noise outside of the church that it's almost hard for me to preach this into the categories I wanted to live in when we got to these passages. But this, this shows up in this space right here, this unique place called the, the household of God. There's a love here. There's a love in our families that we're uniquely looking for. There's a love in our marriages. But they, then again, all three of those settings become very dysfunctional. 
I'd, I'd love to say every marriage here experiences love in a perfect biblical kind of a way. Don't you wish I could say that? I wish I could say that for me. And I know you wish I could say that for you. But there are moments when it seems like love is absent, love is broken, love is turned into hostility, love's turned into disappointment and scars in marriages, in families, and in churches. So, so this thing tends to get broken. So on that surface level, keep the commands, we tend to have a breakdown there. But, but here's what this schematic helps us to see. If we're breaking down this way, husbands and wives, families, church, the breakdown is underneath that. The breakdown for this is in our love for Jesus because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. The outcome of your love exchange between God and us is going to turn into something of an exchange between you and others. So when that stops happening, guess what else is broken? And that's not a bootstrap thing, by the way. That's not something you and I just determine, we're going to love God. I'm just going to make it happen. Jesus knew, um, if you love me, you keep my commands, and you're going to need some help. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, because you won't do this on your own, and you can't do this on your own. So here's the the breakdown. If, If love is broken this way, isn't that kind of where we live and we stop right there? Right? This is why we go in for marriage counseling or this is why we drift apart over the years because love broke down at some point and it's that person's fault. And that's all we see, right? We, all we have in this moment is two human beings having an exchange or maybe I left some church or I went somewhere else because love broke down this way. Nobody noticed me. When I walk in, nobody greeted me. Nobody got around me. Nobody invited me to part of the church. And so I just, I just left. I went somewhere else. And all we see is this breakdown. But, but there's another breakdown. There's a breakdown between me and Jesus that's happening here. And there's a breakdown between my relationship with the Holy Spirit that's happening here. So if you're having marital love problems, you're having Jesus love problems too. And you're having Holy Spirit problems as well. And that's true in this household. It's true in your family as well. So this is what Jesus shows us. This love that's in 1 Corinthians 13, it comes from somewhere. So Jesus says, you're going to receive help by the Holy Spirit who's going to dwell in you. Ezekiel chapter 36, Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, sees the day in which this Holy Spirit's going to come into the lives of human beings. This is how he describes it. This is very helpful stuff when it comes to love. Ezekiel 36 verse 25. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, right? You're going to notice in this passage, there's six I wills, six things God says he's going to do. Zero things he says we're going to do. There are some things that we need done for us and to us and in us that we cannot do for ourselves. This love to operate in us the way Jesus describes it, I'm going to need all these I wills, right? I will need him to cleanse me, to sprinkle clean water and cleanse me from my idols, right? That idol word is a powerful reality, right? What what is an idol? 
An idol is something that functions in my heart that provides for me an alternative set of reasons for my life. Different set of motivations. I stop wanting what God wants. I stop wanting God's agenda because I've got an idol. I've got some form of pleasure that I'm after. I've got some goal that I want to achieve. I want some notoriety for myself. I want a lifestyle. And I'm going to lose sight of God and I'm going to elevate that. And it's going to operate and control my life. Well, how many of you know that if you're married to me and I'm that way, you're you're going to have a hard time receiving love from me because my whole life now is about me and my idols. That's going to be true in a church. It's going to be true in every relationship. How many of you know that you just don't, so you stumble into this thing called love, totally oblivious that if love is going to function in my life, I'm going to need God to deal with my idolatry. Or I'm only going to love you when you serve me and my purpose. How many of you have seen that love all over the place, right? But this is a different love. This 1 Corinthians 13 love is a different love. Ezekiel 36 verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules or my commands. I will do something in you that causes you to obey my commands, says the same God who says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments I will give you a helper. So do you understand this topic of love needs other stuff just besides love to be understood here. There's something that needs to happen in me. There's something of a rescue from my own idolatry and my own sin. There's something of an empowerment by the Holy Spirit that ends up at the end of the day causing me to be careful to obey God's rules which makes me love the unlovable and the difficult and the people that are in my life that aren't easy for me to love. The magnet has gone out, and I'm not attracted to you at this moment. But there's something else operating in me in this moment. This Bible is very careful to say this is something that happens through regeneration and the new birth. This is the activity of the Holy Spirit in the believer who's entrusted themselves to God. This is why it makes no sense for us to stare out at the world and expect the world to empower itself to love one another. The world, just like us, has got plenty of idolatry issues in our hearts, as they do. And... The Holy Spirit is not in them as he is in us. So this would mean I have very low expectations for people outside of the kingdom of God to pull off this kind of love. But I have very high expectations to see us pull it off in here. Very high. Those, unfortunately, those expectations can be quite disappointed 
in here. Listen, I get it. Nobody, nobody can hurt you more, frustrate you more, affect you more than the people that are closest to you. So your family, your spouse, are going to have the greatest potential to disrupt and disappoint and have a terrible impact on this thing called love. I get that. But it's not as though Jesus wasn't aware of that when he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'm going to give you a helper to help you do that. So that in the day that your spouse stops magnetizing you and giving you this euphoric chemical experience attraction and you lose that dimension of love, it doesn't make sense as a Christian that you have no ability to keep loving your spouse. However, way too common in the body of Christ. So can I, can I introduce a thought from this reality of this passage? If you're having a hard time loving your spouse, you, you have a love for Jesus problem in your life. You don't just have a spouse problem. There's more to love than just that. There's an empowerment by the Holy Spirit that doesn't seem to be taking place. I can't, he has, or she's always, and I, hey, listen, I get the magnet goes out. I get that, that there is a love at this level that it becomes damaged. I get that. But there's something deeper to this love in 1 Corinthians 13 that enables you to be patient and kind and not boastful and arrogant and rude and and enables you to endure and to remain faithful, for you to keep being something that other person isn't giving you any reason to be that any longer. That kind of love comes from deep within where the Holy Spirit gives us a love for Jesus, and it's that love exchange that now empowers me to love one another. See, you catch the schematic here? In the Bible, highlights this all over the place. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says, God's Love has been poured into our hearts. Not everybody's heart. Our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Not everybody, but us. You and I get to cheat. We get a power source that others don't have. And the love of God is poured into our hearts. The love that loves when there's no magnet. How many of you guys know my magnet went out a long time ago? There's nothing magnetic about me that God walks by and goes, ooh, just fell in love with Keith. <laughs> just, just Google-eyed over him. Just can't, can't get enough of being around him. How many of you guys know there's never a day? <laughs> Careful. You don't have a day either, by the way. But that God's just stumbling over us in drunk love magnet. The magnet's gone out. And yet he still loves us with an undying pursuit and care and affection. That love is poured out in us. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. This is not a bootstrap thing. It's not you and I forcing this thing to happen. The fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is to us this kind of love, right? So first thing, 
This love does not travel alone. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it's accompanied by something else in this verse that I want to highlight specifically. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love does not envy or boast. That word boast is a big word in the Bible. You study that word boast, you're going to find a lot of interesting stuff attached to it. So it does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Because this love doesn't travel alone. It always travels with humility. Humility is always part of this love. Right, so if you were to glance at this wonderful description Paul's provided for us in chapter 13 of what this love is like, and you were to say, well, you know, I don't, what would be the opposite of love? What would be the thing operating in us that does the opposite of these things? Rather than being patient, it is impatient. It is envious. It is boastful. It is arrogant, rude, and it insists on its own way. Who, whose character would that be? Well, that would be a, our friend called pride. Pride is always those things. Love is patient, but pride is impatient and rude and self-insistent, right? So if you and I are going to live in this thing called love, which all of us do, we all want this, we're going to have to spend some time with humility. And that's exactly what Paul does in constructing 1 Corinthians, right? I've already pointed out over and over again, Paul does not make a beeline to to the word love. As important as it is to us, His first thing, chapter 1, let's talk about love. No, 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 it's chapter 13 before he's talking about love. But you know what he does talk about in chapter 1? Humility. First thing that he brings up. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, to let you see Paul's remedy to relational conflict. And just remember, I know we've been in 1 Corinthians a long time. It was a long time ago when we were in chapter 1. But Paul opened the letter with greetings, how are you, great to, great to see you. And then the first thing he brings up, chapter 1, verse 10, he brings up, uh, I've, I've heard that there's divisions among you guys. Rather than being of the same mind and the same judgment, there are these divisions and there's quarreling among you. Hey, Chloe's people have told me this, right? So you get, first thing, first thing he's going to talk about is you've got relational breakdowns with each other. There is division and quarreling among you. Not love, division and quarreling. And he's going to unpack that for a few verses and then he's going to get to verse 26. And this is how he's going to fix the divisions and the quarreling. He's going to introduce them to humility. Verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose, right? The feature here is what God chose. Three times we get told. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence 
God. Love does not boast. Well, why does it not boast? Well, this is why. Humbling to hear Paul tell them, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why are you a Christian? Why have you called on God? Why do you walk at any moment of your life for God's purpose? Why? Because of him. Wait, wait, not because of me? I thought it was because of me. I mean, I, I chose, right? I chose God. Well, you don't seem to be coming up in this paragraph. God choosing seems to be coming up, but you don't seem to be coming up. And you don't get to take any credit. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And this wisdom, well, that's because of him too. He became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? So if there's anything great about us, anything that would cause us to say, hey, there's divisions among us because I'm in the great group, you're in the lesser group. I'm over here in this place because there's something unique about me that's different than you. And, and I should get some extra credit for that. I should be noticed for that. And, and I'm noticing your deficiency. I'm noticing how you fall short. I'm noticing you're not exactly made of the same quality that I'm made of. This is what's going on in Corinth. This is what can go on in here. This is what can go on in our marriages, in our families. And the remedy for Paul is an interesting remedy here. Paul's going to whip out the doctrine of election and present it to them. That's what all this God choosing, if you follow that thought out in Scripture, it has to do with God choosing to have a people that are his own and God choosing to have individuals to respond to him. That's the doctrine of election. And listen, I, I know the doctrine of election for, for way too many of us is, is kind of like that quirky uncle who needs to stay in the basement and not come out when we have company. Because it's really hard to explain, and, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure I like the way it sounds. I much prefer, I don't know why, but much prefer to think that, you know, the way people get into the kingdom of God is it's, every, it's up to them. It's up to them. And the doctrinal election comes along and says, no, it's up to God. He chose. He cho- When did he choose? The Bible is going to tell you he chose before the foundations of the world. So he chooses well in advance. This is like, oh, this is weird. Can I just tell you, Paul doesn't apologize for pulling this out. It's chapter one. Hi, Corinthians. I'm the apostle Paul. Nice to have a conversation with you. Can we talk about the doctrine of election? He didn't even taught hardly anything into the book, and he's teaching the doctrine of election. Ephesians chapter one. Wonderful outlay. If you want to understand incredible things about the church and God's purpose in it, go read Ephesians. Unfortunately, you won't get first past the first few verses without the doctrine of election coming up. So apparently this is a big deal. When you teach through Romans, right? I'm going to tell you to turn to Romans with me. Turn to Romans. When you teach through Romans, one of the most doctrinally driven, deep books in all of Scripture, and you get all the way to chapter 9, where this incredible case has been made for how God loves us, how God has a purpose for us. We know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So there's a purpose in God. There's all these great promises and potential for God's people. 
But then people step back from that moment and scratch their heads and go, well, wait, 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 wait. So, if Paul, if all of this is really as cool as you're saying it is, why isn't everybody in on this? Why isn't every Israelite who, you know, was God's people, God's promised people through Abraham, all these promises he made there, why aren't every last one of them believers if this stuff is all that great? You know what Paul does in that moment? He pulls out the doctrine of election. He says, well, well this is why, right? Romans chapter 9. I don't know if we have this on the screen or not, but I'm going to back up into verse 6. It says, but it, it, it's not as though the word of God has failed. That's the question, right? If everybody is not a believer and God loves everybody, then has God's word failed? No, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they're offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Before Isaac... I mean, rather, before Jacob and Esau are even born, God is making a decision. That's the depiction here. God is choosing. So in that choice, Jacob can't stand and say, hey, check me out. I got chosen. Must be something special about me. No, go back and read your resume, Jacob. Before you had done anything good or bad, before there was anything magnetic about you to attract God, God chose. Down in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, it doesn't depend on your resume. When God goes to bring us into relationship with him, he doesn't pull out your file and see, what have you done, what have you not done? You having a good day or a bad day? Good year or a bad year? Does something about you outweigh something else? No, no, no. It is so that God's purpose in calling, that his own right to choose is going to get expressed. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Which, that's pretty good news. I don't know if you noticed, that's pretty good news. Because for me, that means it doesn't matter what my story is. I don't have to achieve the favor of God. And if I've done something, and you're here this morning, you think you've done something that's disqualified you from ever being the object of God's love. You might be sitting here today thinking, well, you have no idea what I've done. And God turns to you and says, but I will have mercy on whom I have mercy.
mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So your life cannot chase my mercy off because I can have mercy on whoever I choose. That's what that means. Listen, this is a sobering reality, right? This is, this is, and this is absorbed, Romans 9, 10, and 11. The doctrine of election is not a small issue. Right, you get to the end of this little section in Romans 9 and verse 29, and it says something here that is just eye-opening. Supporting his argument, Paul says, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, right? made a promise to Abraham that he would have offspring who would inherit these promises. If God hadn't done something to make that happen, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If God hadn't chosen, if God hadn't taken action, we, our story, would be Sodom and Gomorrah's. Do you remember their story? Sodom and Gomorrah is the, the, the towns in the valley during the time of Abraham and Lot where the judgment of God rains down and nobody, nobody is righteous to be spared. Everybody in the town is judged. And, and listen, uh, you know, again, careful what you listen to in the news, the, the news that, it, that is doing its best to convince you that if you just educate human beings, they'll become good people. Not the case in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think their problem was that they were stupid. The problem was that they were sinful. And when sin ran its course in their lives, you couldn't show up for that place in that town for one night without getting raped by the locals. That's what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says, if God didn't intervene, everything about humanity would be Sodom and every last person would fall into the judgment of God. Listen, there was a family there named Lot and his family. Do you remember their story in Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot doesn't want to leave. His heart has become so knit to Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't want to leave. God's messengers have to drag Lot out of the city to spare him. How many of you know that you had to be dragged out of sin by the mercy of God to spare you as well? I'm Lot. No matter how much I live in the city, I'm like the sinner over there. I'm no different. Lot doesn't get to evacuate and go, at least I know to dodge a bullet. (laughs) I knew when it was getting bad. Lot, you're an idiot. You had to be dragged out of Sodom you'd have gone down with everybody else. And so would we. Do you understand why this matters? Because when you see your life under the mercy of God, it pops boasting like a cheap balloon. What do you have to boast about? Boasting gets squashed under the doctrine of God's election in our lives. And so you can't be a part of a church with an attitude towards others because they just don't get it. And they don't have their life together the way you do. And you can't believe that they would, somebody would say that to you. And you, why? Because you're shocked by that? Because you're so much better? You would never do that. Oh, no, but you'd do something else. And something else is something else. 
Do you think anybody is a member of a church and part of the body of Christ because there's something special about us? No. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is why love doesn't boast. Because it can't. Got the boasting bubble ball burst. What about in your marriage? Every fight is always a matter of who did more wrong than the other one, isn't it? Because for the most part, I've yet to encounter in marriage counseling in my own marriage where anybody's 100% innocent. It's a history of interactions where there's a little bit of guilt and a lot of guilt, and the next one we change parts, and the other one's got a little bit of guilt and a lot of guilt. And there's just this there's just, just function. It's just broken down. And then there's this arrogance that can come in. You're worse than me. You're the reason why we are this way. You never and you always. I mean, what is it? I'm up on my high tower. I've found three things that I do right. I'm ignoring the hundred things that I do wrong. And I'm featuring the 10 that you do wrong right now. And I'm superior to you. And the reason why we can't move on from this is because you're this and you're this and you're this. What am I doing right now? I'm boasting in my superiority. But love doesn't boast. Why does it not boast? Because you have access to God by his mercy and his compassion. And yet you would look to your spouse as though they need to earn something before you. It's boasting, isn't it? It's my superiority that allows me to feel that way. But love doesn't boast. And that's what the doctrine of election does for us. Listen, this love doesn't travel alone. If you just make a beeline towards love, you get married, you get in relationships, you go to a church, you can just be dealing with love at such a poorly informed level. Maybe you haven't thought that if I'm going to have a a deep walk of love with another person, I'm going to need to have humility with me. Otherwise, we're not going far. Because at some point, I'm going to become superior to you, and this is not going to work anymore. Love doesn't boast. It's not arrogant and rude. For these reasons. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, one of the things that it needs to happen is we need to get rescued from using human reasons for God-like love. Love is patient. Okay. Why? Why is love patient? Why are you patient with anybody? Keith, uh, you know, good things come to those who wait. Um, I'm just not a real pushy personality. It's like, you know, I can kind of go with the flow. Okay, good, I'm glad. That's not why love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13, though. Love is not boastful. It's not arrogant. Why? You know, when you're rude like that, it just kind of kills the mood of the room. You know, if we're together doing things, you know, we're on vacation as a family, it just kind of turns the whole place into this, ah, horrible atmosphere. Well, I was just raised that way. You know, it's not proper to speak like that. We don't say that sort of thing. Stop it. It's rude. Not rude. Okay, you got your reasons. Have you ever thought love is not arrogant and it doesn't boast 
Because of the doctrine of election? Have you ever thought that? You ever get in a fight with your wife? Solve it by the doctrine of election? Just immediately, humility floods into the room and all of a sudden you're aware of who you are before God who's granted you more rights than you ever should have had in your life. You should have been Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet you are the wealthiest people in the world. And you are strangling somebody over some math of difference between the two of you. This makes a difference, doesn't it? See, there are reasons that this love does not travel alone. The Holy Spirit travels with this love. Humility travels with this love. So if I'm having a breakdown in love, I might want to check those two categories and not just say, well, we fell out of love. It was really great when I first started to come to church here. Everything was, uh, felt magnetic, right? Uh, and now it feels hard. I get it. I've been here a long time. I get it. <laughs> but 1 Corinthians 13 has something else in it. It's got humility in it. It's got the Holy Spirit in it. And we are afforded something unique as a household as a community, as an alternative community to out there. And I want to highlight that in closing. This is my last thought here. But I, I want to, this is just a little tip on reading the Bible, right? Uh, when we read passages, there are things that a big deal gets made of in that passage. And wherever we see a big deal being made, we should make a big deal of things. And then there are other things that almost don't even get spoken of or they, they kind of get overlooked a little bit. And, and when that happens, we should notice that, notice that too. Right, so Paul says something here in his serving up this humble pie in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26, remember he says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Right, can I just highlight something about that? those three classifications, especially in our day? Right now, there's so much debate going on in our world. What Paul just picked up was the, the power structures of the Roman lifestyle, right? So you were somebody in the eyes of other people if you were wise, right? Because they loved wisdom. The Greek influence in Roman culture was to love wisdom. Probably some of the, the most popular people around were your philosopher debaters. They would come to your dinner parties. They were the hired entertainment for the evening. You'd have all kinds of people over to your rich home. And you would have this guy stand up at the end in the big atrium where all the people would gather, and he would, he would debate the philosophies of the day. And if he was really good at it, he was very popular. He was like a celebrity. Paul said, not many of you were that guy. Then there was the powerful, who because of their money or their business ownerships or their associations, they had influence in the culture. They had power to make things happen and to avoid consequences in their own lives. And they could help you with that as well. And then there were the, those of noble birth. You got your privilege because of whose family you come from, who you are related to. Right, so notice this because Paul brings it up, but he doesn't do much with it. Right? So I wrote this in your outline. I think it's helpful for our times. Paul is identifying the social structures of oppressed and oppressor, of haves and have-nots, of privilege and poverty, what 
striking to me as I observe the Holy Spirit's strategy to the apostle who lays the foundations for the church is that Paul's greatest concern is with what's going on within the church, not as much with what's going on in the culture around the church. He brings up social stratification and says next to nothing about it. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about it. This means right now he's talking to the church and this matters incredibly. And here is where the emphasis is for Paul. So why am I bringing this up? In a year of a presidential election, coupled with a year of civil unrest like we haven't seen quite a while, God's people can be very tempted to believe that the good of God's purpose is bound up with government policies and personalities. Yet you'd be surprised how little the New Testament interacts with government policies, tax strategies, government social programming, who's going to be the next Caesar, whether or not the Senate's going to gain greater influence over Caesar or not. You, you only learn that stuff by reading history. You don't learn it from the Bible. The Bible doesn't interact with that stuff very much. Paul doesn't chase a sidebar comment here on performing the, social, or the societal power structures, on reforming them. Paul's passionate concern is for this alternative community that God is building here on earth. Now, let me give you a thought from a theologian who wrote a piece in a book called Uncommon Ground. Kristen D. Johnson writes a thought and she draws it from St. Augustine's writings about a heavenly city and an earthly city that he's writing in the 400s. I'm mentioning all this not because it's wasted time, but because it's important to understand he's writing during a time of massive political upheaval. The Roman Empire, which has been 900,000 years in power, is coming apart in the 300s and 400s. And so you're, you're losing Rome as the center of the universe and it's moving to other places You've got people with power now who are operating, thinking differently, installing new philosophies in government. So into this setting, a lot of political upheaval is in the air when St. Augustine is writing this. He says, to help Christians make sense of these unexpected political realities, Augustine drew on scripture to argue that in this age before Christ's return, we find ourselves with two cities. One is the heavenly city, which Christ is king and of which his followers are citizens. This city is made possible by the saving work of Christ who redeems and reorders our loves so that we can love God and serve others in love. The other city is the earthly city, marked not by love of God, but by lust for power domination. This city is a result of sin, which continues to manifest itself as people seek their own good over the good of others and use their power to dominate rather than to love and serve. As Christians, our primary allegiance is to the heavenly city, not to the earthly city in which we live. In the earthly city, we are pilgrims, never fully at home because our ultimate destination is the heavenly city. 
We ought not to expect to find ourselves at home in this age, nor ought we to expect the earthly city of which we are a part to embody our love of God. Our hope cannot lie in the earthly city, but in Christ alone, who lives and reigns in and over all earthly realities and who will come again to fully usher in the kingdom. Augustine's perspective helps us limit the hopes we place in any earthly political system while reminding us that we have the strongest foundation for hope in Christ our King. Because of this hope, we no longer need to claim to the present age its institution and its blessings as do those who only know citizenship in the earthly city. We can live through complex political turmoil without anxiety. Did you know that? I know that's shocking news. There's not a news broadcast anywhere that sounds that way. You need to freak out with every ounce of your being right now. No, we can live through complex political turmoil without anxiety, trusting that God's redemptive work is bigger than a particular political arrangement. Augustine's conviction is that Christians can live faithfully as citizens of the heavenly city in a wide range of political arrangements. Christians are to follow the laws, customs, and institutions of the political societies in which they find themselves, provided that those laws, customs, and institutions do not hinder their worship of God. Ensuring the success, listen, of one particular political order is not, in Augustine's view, and I would argue in Paul's view, incumbent upon us as Christians. Political systems may come and go. I know Americans have such a hard time with that statement. We are the Johnny-come-latelys on the block of humanity. We are a few hundred-year-old experiment in something. The world existed long before us. There were governments of every kind. Do you think the Bible just now figured out a way to be successful because America figured out a democratic system that the whole world needs to get in on this democratic system so that this can finally be what it says it is? Does anybody believe that? This worked under Caesar. This works under Pol Pot. This works under the dictatorships in China. This works everywhere all the time. doesn't need us to create a political atmosphere so that it can then begin to work. Political systems may come and go, but our citizenship is in the heavenly city, remains. And yet, and this is helpful, even as we take this big picture approach to our citizenship, we are called to be involved in the earthly cities in which we live. The earthly city can achieve certain goods, and we as pilgrims can and should contribute to those goods while recognizing that they are not the ultimate goods for which we were created and redeemed. Did Eric come back up here? Okay, you can come back up. Because this thought flows out of this reality that in here, God 
puts a special expression and encounter with his love that makes us a different people. It will not matter what government is out there. Who we are is a matter of what God is to us in here by the Holy Spirit. The love that transforms from this place is what we're primarily concerned about. Doesn't mean we turn a blind eye. Doesn't mean we don't care about what's going on in our world. But it does mean we need to be very careful. And so I'm going to close with this, this thought to encourage you guys. In this hotbed season that we're in, politically, civil unrest issues, we should be seeking to engage those things but we shouldn't be anxiously freaked out by them either. So give me permission to say this to everybody in the room here. I get a lot of feedback from you guys, and you're also always very encouraging, very kind. One of the things that you commonly will say to me is, thank you for being a pastor who tells us what we need to hear no matter what. But you don't pull any punches. All right, let me see if you still mean that after I say this. So if you are politically conservative, and that's your bent, that's what makes sense to you, you can feel like 2020 is the turning point for human history. Whoever wins the election in November, it's make or break for them. It's either going to be hell on earth from then on out, or somehow we're going to still have the hope of a savior. That could be how you feel. You could be more on the progressive, liberal side of thinking. And you can see right now in our history, 2020 is at this turning point. This moment in which the philosophical ideas attached to capitalism are being challenged. And the haves and the have-nots, that could get fixed. And finally, we could create some kind of a system that that is good for everybody, not just the, the top 5%. And this is an important moment. This is a critical moment. You could be black or white and engaging the race issue right now and feel like never before in the history of our country has that issue found more fertile ground for discussion, for change, for implementing things that would create equality amongst people. You could be aware of all those things, but you know what ultimately you and I need to be aware of? is that our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior. There will not be a savior elected in November. There will not be a law passed that becomes a savior for anybody, black, white, poverty, rich. We await a savior. The one we put our faith and our trust in is in heaven, in a heavenly city who has gone to prepare a place for us last forever that we will be a part of. That doesn't change at all at the end of November. These realities are bigger than all those realities. And they become the basis by which Paul engages the Corinthians and says, I hear there's division among you. American church in 2020, I hear there's divisions among Love doesn't boast, and it's not arrogant, and it's not rude. Even if you happen to be for the wrong political party, it doesn't become any of those things 
because there's something more to this love. So let me issue this phrase and a warning to all of us. If you make gospel unity conditioned on racial unity or political unity or social structure unity or generational unity, you will greatly hinder and harm kingdom of God unity. If you're waiting to see if you can get everybody on the same page in those categories, then we can be together in the gospel. No, no, no. If you do that, you will greatly harm the unity of the kingdom of God. Our unity is not based on those things. We walk in love with one another and we walk in unity with one another because of the Savior in heaven whom we await, who has brought us together. We may disagree incredibly on all those issues. And we can have a conversation, but we're not called to be unified in those things. But we are called to love each other in unity in here. Let's stand up together. Father, when we came in here today, there are probably different husbands and wives here, different siblings, different members of the body of Christ right here. Could be in different places when it comes to experiencing and expressing this thing called love. Lord, maybe that's not going really well right now. Maybe for some, love seems so distant, so far off. There's just so much more hurt and disappointment and unmet expectations in that category than there is some euphoria, some amazing thing. Lord, when we go to fix love, how many of us have tried to fix love? run toward another person with their ideas and our ideas and we just have it out. Argue those ideas and the one who wins, somehow that's going to fix love. Lord, today you have opened our eyes to understand something about love, that love never travels alone. So Lord, if there is a breakdown in love that's happening in any of the relational settings of our lives, there is a breakdown in our exchange with the Holy Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So God, where I don't seem to be able to give love and experience love in settings where the magnet's sort of gone out, God, I need to be reintroduced to the Holy Spirit to his engagement with my life, to his exchange with me, to his conversation with my soul. Lord, where there is a breakdown in our relationships of love, God, would you make us to run towards humility as a means of fixing love? Because love doesn't boast and it's not arrogant and rude. And it's not those things because you, God, have approached us on the basis that humbles us. 
mercy is toward us. Every day of our lives, undeserved compassion and mercy. So Lord, where we are conscious right now, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, members of the body of Christ, Lord, where we are aware of a lack of love, it's broken. There's not an exchange. God, would you today not just have us staring at love, saying that ain't working. God, run us towards humility. Open our understandings. Because God, this love never travels alone. We need humility. We need the Spirit so that we might love one another the way you've called us to. So God, we thank you. I thank you for this love story in this chapter. God, we want it to be more than a word. We want it to be our experience. We want it to be our exchange. We want to express it and receive it from each other. For your glory, oh God, that we may boast in you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Guys at home, we miss you. Look forward to seeing you. Come join us. Hopefully next week you can sign up for a slot next week and be here with us. Much love.